Welcome to the Fantasy Canon Podcast, where we discuss the classics of fantasy fiction from yesterday and today. I'm your host, David Charlton. Today, Chris and I will be discussing the second half of Thieves' World, the first volume in the Thieves' World anthology series. And please be advised that there will be spoilers galore. We will talk about the story, characters, and themes of this book. So if you haven't read the book and don't want to be spoiled, please come back to this episode at a later date. If this is the first episode of the Fantasy Canon podcast you're listening to, then please pause this and go back and listen to the previous episode, episode 10, first. This episode is a continuation of that discussion and the second half of our coverage of the first volume of Thieves' World. While we were recording uh, episode 10, we quickly realized that we'd have to split it into two episodes as there was just too much to cover. Uh, If you've already listened to the previous episode, then thank you for your patience and for waiting for the rest of our discussion. And without further ado, we will jump into it. Um, All right, so let's move on to Blood Brothers by Joe Haldeman. Um, Joe Haldeman, he is still alive. He is one of the uh, he was born in 43, so he was late 30s um, or mid-30s when this came out. So uh, the, the, all these people have uh, a, a great resumes. His book that he's known for is The Forever War. Um, have you read that one, by the way, Chris? I have not. No. Okay. Or if I have, it's been a million years ago, and I, I don't remember that I have. I, I read this one. It was a long time ago, too. It was one of the ones I took out of the library. It's in school, but I like this book as a antithesis, actually, of Starship Troopers by Robert Heinlein. And of course, Starship Troopers is the much more famous story, not just because, but because it was made into a movie. And actually, the, the movie was uh, was actually kind of a parody of the book. It kind of uh, sent up the message of of the book. But but anyway, the, my my point by bringing it up is that Robert Heinlein actually approached Joe Haldeman at a convention once and he said that it was the best future war story he ever read heinlein told haldeman that the forever war was the best future war story he ever read and what i like about it is that unlike starship troopers which sort of glorifies war and obedience to the state is that um, the forever war shows the dehumanizing effect of warfare and and the futility of wars and their effect on the on the human soul which is a message that you, you don't get from Starship Troopers. It, we might see a movie of this one of these days. Ridley Scott has tried to make it a movie several times. Uh, it's this, it's sort of stuck right now uh, in development hell, I think they call it. Uh, but anyway, Joe Haldeman wrote a couple of er, very early Star Trek novels, some of the earliest of the Star Trek novels. Uh, for what it's worth, this is his only Thieves' World story. Uh, he never wrote another one, but he did create the character of one thumb. Um, I'm not sure if he created the vulgar unicorn, but um, he did create the character of one thumb, who is the night bartender and owner of the vulgar unicorn. Uh, but this is a down and dirty story. This one is this one kind of gets under your skin a little bit. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about this story, Chris? The Blood Brothers by Joe Holden. Well, your your point of view character in this is One Thumb, um, who also his given name we're assuming is Lastal, uh, which is revealed later in a um, conversation with the wizard uh, who maintains a spell upon One Thumb. 
as a matter of fact, uh, it's a spell that is uh, a curse for anyone that tries to kill one thumb. Yeah. The person would never die, but they would live forever in helpless agony, which mm-hmm. was a great help in you know keeping one thumb alive. I mean, who the hell wants to go through that? You know, I killed mm-hmm. you. Oh crap! Now I'm going to be in agony forever. Just so everyone knows, I mean, it's pretty. Uh, straight out said that uh, not only is one thumb a murderer, but he's a rapist too. So um, we learn pretty quickly that while this is a bad dude in the conventional sense of, you know, bad being good, he's a bad dude. Um, But it's also, he's really a bad dude. (laughs) He's not a very good guy, but he seems to be respected uh, in sanctuary, or at least in his portion of the maze, the the vulgar unicorn, uh, vulgar unicorn being kind of a, a sanctuary within sanctuary as, as you know, you might want to say, which is a brothel. And, uh, she pays her girls in, and I, I always look at this and it goes kerf, uh, K R R F. It strikes me as kind of a, like a, I think it's uh, a bit more than that. I think it's, um, like a fantasy cocaine. Um, could be very well. Could be, uh, we also meet, uh, Ms. Wraith, uh, who is a, a very old sorcerer and the person that one, I'm sorry, listen, listen, listen to me telling you about drugs. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Dave. Okay. There are no cops <laughs> listening to this episode. They have to tell us if they are. <laughs> they can't, can't be hiding behind the old, the billboard. That's entrapment. Yeah. Um, we're also, we're also introduced to, uh, Ms. Wraith, who is the sorcerer, the very old sorcerer, uh, who holds the, uh, spell on, uh, one thumb, the one that, that, that curses people to die, have a agony if they kill, uh, one thumb. He maintains it for a price. Absolutely. One thumb has to pay us a, a, a substantial stu- sum. It's never mentioned what that is, but it is definitely uh, uh, said that, yes, it is something that he has to pay and it is not a small amount. Uh, we also get a, a introduction to Mizraith's sons uh, as well. And uh, one son really stands out, uh, Marip, which is kind of a weird thing. I mean, you could look at it and say Mary P., M-A-R-Y-P-E, but... Um, yeah. Some of these names don't look like they were made to be pronounced. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. Maripe, Marapi, um, but he he is the ambitious son. He He's mad that his father's not teaching him as much as he wants, as fast as he wants. So he's uh, gone to his father's deadliest rival, Mark Moore, called the second most powerful magician in Sanctuary, which ignores Enos Yorl completely. Uh, And that could be very well one of the things that was explained at the very beginning. You know, uh, we see these things through these characters. We don't see the whole picture. So it's quite possible that the slight is not an intended slight. It's just... Haldeman most likely just didn't read John Bruner's story. (laughs) Very well could be true. Anyone else's story for that matter. (laughs) (laughs) And while uh, while the last two stories are pretty straightforward, this one actually has quite a bit of depth to it. It seems to have more scenes and more places and more reasons for doing things, or at least the characters seem to be more, 
I don't know, fleshed out or important to the story. Uh, they're not as ancillary to one thumb as some of the previous characters might be to their, their POV uh, chapters. Haldeman seems to be an, uh, an excellent storyteller. I will agree with you. Yes. I'm going to go a little further in depth than I did in the last couple, so it won't be as short. It opens up in a a master of sanctuaries estate. Uh, he holds a luncheon. He dismisses the servants, but holds back a young rank and noble whom he poisons. The noble, now that he's poisoned this uh, other young rank and noble. Uh, which is important because, again, this we're in Ilsig and Rank is trying to come in and, and take over. The uh, now dead Rankin Noble is drugged and butchered alive and get fed to the dogs. But yeah, so we, we find out that the murderer is actually one thumb. Um, it's a very valuable thing. After he gets done killing the Rankin Noble, there's a tunnel between his estate and the Lily Garden, and when he gets there, he's met by a eunuch who guards the door into the lily garden, and he breaks off a very small piece of kerf for the eunuch, who says, you know, I can't do that right now. I'm on duty. I'll put it away for later. He, uh, he goes to sell it to Amoli, and that, that's what One Thumb is there for, is to sell it to Amoli, because her uh, ladies are, that's part of their payment. They get kerf as part of their payment. And apparently uh, the stuff is so potent that it, one pinch properly inserted will turn you into a girl again, giving you instant maidenhead. And there is a species of person who might find that's very attractive and pay a little bit more for it. So it's <laughs> definitely something that uh, Amoli is, you know, she wants to provide to her girls because she can charge more. So making a business transaction. Um, so was that meant to be literal, like, like it would make a physical transformation in who took it, or is that meant to mean it does something like mental? I don't, I don't know. I don't know if there's an answer to that question. I, it's the only time this is really ever described like this. It's just weird. But yeah, that I can't imagine why a drug would be able to do something like that. But then again, you know, drugs are weird things. And this is what we mean about Thieves' World being a, a hard R rating. Oh, oh, yes, 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 absolutely. So Amoli is out um, or not available. I forget which one it is, but sleeping, that's what it was. Yeah, she's sleeping. So one thumb has to go do uh, has to go do some errands before he gets back back to the vulgar unicorn. We give a we're given a kind of a tour of the bazaar and the maze uh, with some very descriptive passages of what it's like to be in that place. You know, the earthy smell from the animal pens, the tanner's vats of rotting urine, delicate cucumber fragrance of freshly butchered fish. It was just one of the more um, evocative sentences in the story, just because it just it evokes all of these like sense descriptions, doesn't it? Any kind of good storing, storytelling will give you something like that. Mm. It, it makes your mind kind of fall more into the story or make it more real for you or whatever it is. So, But it, it's definitely good to have wonderful descriptions like that. So, yeah, right. Um, and on his way back, uh, he has a very clumsy novice pickpocket follow him. One-eyed just ducks into a side alley, gets himself into a little alcove, waits for the the, the novice to come by, and basically just pummels him and then slits his throat. I mean, life is cheap in the maze, man, and yeah. nothing says it more than that. So, 
Yeah, he's so impressed with himself that he murdered two people in one day. Yeah, it'd been like a year or something like that. I think he says it's been like a year since I did that. So, right. yeah, he's pretty pumped about that. <laughs> you, you get some insight there as to why he uh, killed that guy in the beginning. It wasn't just for the kerf. It was um, a job from his uh, the, the Rankin Noble's father's advisors um, because the the daughter that was going to that um, was going to inherit instead is more amenable to to them. So that's just a little insight. Right. And it just it just goes to prove again what we already know about sanctuary. It's it's, you know, deals within deals within deals and Mm -hmm. everybody's got an angle and, you know, you're willing to do anything for money. And, you know, if you can't find one guy to do it, you'll find somebody else to do it. So it just reinforces that. But we're back at the vulgar unicorn. Amoli finally wakes up and she meets uh, she meets one thumb down at the vulgar uniform and she's mad because she accuses him of taking the block of kerf that she had bought yesterday from uh, Marip, which is the son of Mizraith, who's the one who holds the spell on one thumb. One thumb says there's no freaking way that it can be that. He says, I, I got it from this Rankin noble earlier today, you know, so, and, and that's how I found out about it. So this, whatever block you're talking about has nothing to do with what I got here going on. And he goes back to prove it to her because on his way into the shop that night, into the vulgar unicorn, he's put it into his strong box. So he takes her back there to show it to her and it's gone. So now he's been stolen from, and she's been stolen from. So now they figure, all right, well, now we got to figure out what's going on here. The two of them together go to uh, to confront Mizraith. And they're they suspect at- his son, um, Merope, right? Merope, yes, that's yeah. right. Um, so that when they go to confront him, they're met at the front doors by his sons, the, the two that are there, which uh, their names are not in front of me right here. But regardless, uh, they cast a spell that heats them, heats up any metal on their bodies because the sons have said, you know, no weapons. You can't bring any weapons in here. And again, this is one of those little turns of, I don't know better story building or more immersive or something to that effect. But I mean, of course you expect one thumb to take out, you know, knives and daggers and swords and this and that one and whatnot. But uh, he starts to a sentence by saying that Amoli uh, turns her back to everyone and faces the wall and pulls up her skirts. And I'm thinking, okay, well, she's got a dagger under there or whatever. Um, And she kind of does, but he describes it as, the ultimate birth control device, a sort of diaphragm with a spring-loaded razor attached. Oh. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Not being a woman, I can't say how comfortable that might be, but I can certainly see, especially in her profession, why there might be a need for something like that. And we're, once word gets around from the first guy that gets split open by that, I don't <laughs> think anybody's going to take advantage of you any further. Oh, man. So, yeah, right. This is what I mean about this story just being like so extreme <laughs> you know, from the like the knifing in the alley to the butchering and feeding him to the dogs to the fantasy cocaine to the spring loaded razor as a birth control device. <laughs> it's just some crazy stuff. But anyway, go on. It is. And, and to further go dragging this even further through the mud, we get to Mizraith, who um, we find in his inner chamber uh, with a, a very young uh, girl 
it's not, I'm not entirely sure whether she's nine, 10, 11. She's around in that age. At least that's the, the, what I, what you're trying to be told. And misery, she's naked, has no clothes on. She's tending a samovar of tea. And Misraith is not really interested in her nakedness until she turns and walks away. And uh, he says, from behind, she could be a boy. Like I said, this is just more, I don't know what to call it. Flavoring is a bad word. Um, It's not the descriptive word I'm looking for. It's just, it continues to sink into just blech. You know, these are some terrible fucking people. Right. So but he keeps giving us this example, these examples of why this is a bad place, why these are bad people. Exactly. And it contributes to the story in that respect. So you, you're not, there's nobody to root for in this. Nobody. But that's kind of sanctuary. There's really nobody in sanctuary to root for because they're all pretty fucked up. That's a good question. We'll save that one for the end. Yeah, we could do that. So anyways, the sorcerer Mizraith says, do you have any of the curf? And of course, you know, Amoli and One Thumb are like, well, of course we don't. That's why we're here. But then One Thumb remembers the pinch of Kerf that he gave to the eunuch. And he asks the eunuch, do you still have it? Well, he's shared it out a little bit, but there's a little smudge left. And Mizraith is able to determine that it is his son who has absconded with the Kerf. And Mizraith instantly teleports his son to his room to confront him. And when he gets there, uh, Mareep is furious, naked, and rampant. Mareep does not deny his alliance with Markmore, who is Mizraith's rival. Thank you. So Mareep does not deny it. He says that he's teaching, that Markmore is now teaching him because his father won't teach him fast enough. A fight starts. Uh, Mareep loses. Uh, Mizraith pays off Amoli in gold and promises one thumb uh, the return of the Kerf, then dismisses them as the wizard battle begins. Uh, and Markmore flickers back into the room and they have their little fight. This ends pretty much that whole f- encounter. So one thumb goes back to the vulgar unicorn. He waits out the night. He takes some of the domestic Kerf. And there is definitely a difference between the block that he has been pursuing and the domestic stuff. And he heads back to his estate in the morning. He goes through the tunnel uh, to the lily garden, or at the lily garden, he goes through the tunnel from there, and he tells the eunuch that he's considering checking on uh, Mizraith, but he feels that he'd know if the sorcerer was dead. So uh, in the tunnel, he encounters an image of Mizraith who tells him he may die soon and that his charm has been transferred to Stefab and to pay him instead. And the curf as well, is waiting for him in the tunnel. And Mizraith says, it costs more than you know, which to me was always funny because that sounds altruistic in a sense. I mean, yes, One Thumb is paying Mizraith to maintain the spell on One Thumb, but what loyalty does that give Mizraith to One Thumb? You know, why would he fight his own son to the death for something like that? Is it reputation? Is it, you know, why would you do that? So I think it's about business. One Thumb is a businessman. Ms. Wraith is a businessman. They've got a contract, which is why he transfers the spell to the son for that continuity. So I, I think it's more about that than any altruism. Indeed. And then at the very end, as he's getting ready to, uh, as he's getting ready to exit the tunnel, uh, One Thumb encounters uh, a Wraith of himself, and they fight. 
And as they're fighting, I, they're just mirror images of each other. You know, one moves one way, the other one moves the other way. They can counter each other's blows. They, they, there's no advantage until there's one passage where uh, one thumb thinks to himself, we're too evenly matched. I need to try something different or something random. And you immediately read in the next sentence that Lastel thinks that we're evenly matched and I have to try something random. So, I mean, it's that's how mirror-like that they mm-hmm. already are. So yeah. one thumb finally says, look, if you kill me, you die forever. If I kill you, the same. It's a sorcerer's trap. And Lastel tells him, no, Mizraith's dead. And one, when one thumb tells him his son is holding the spell, Lastel replies, then how am I here? He fights, slashing and stabbing each himself to death, feeling his very marrow on fire, time freezing in a web of blood that he would look on forever, seeing for a flickering moment the image of two sorcerers smiling. The yeah. end. That's a, that's a killer ending. Literally, killer ending. <laughs> yeah. Although it puts paid to one thumb, who I have to imagine comes back later, so he he is. Uh, th- they do address this in future books, um, even though, like I said, this is the only story that Joe Haldeman ever wrote, and one thumb is his character. Um, that's the thing about a shared shared world; people can use your characters, and especially when you check out, and he's like, "No, I'm done. I'm not going to write anymore. You can have them." They, they kind of picked up the ball and ran with it. So he, he does appear again later. He does not live a death in agony forever. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that's kind of a Twilight Zone uh, twisty ending at the end where he's got to fight himself and it l- leads to this weird non-existence of living death for him. Yeah, and there, there really isn't anything else to cover in the story. I mean, yeah, there's bits and pieces of this and that that you can yeah. get into. But I mean, that's that's a pretty straightforward telling of what that story was about. And and like I already said, it's it seems to be very detailed for a short story. I mean, you do kind of get involved in it. It's it's basically one long scene of a couple of days in this guy's life, but it's it's very involved and not in a convoluted way, not in a made up way, not in a, you know, gee, they just did that to serve the story. It all seems to flow really really naturally. Yeah, it's a great I think it's a good story in that sense. Um it is the story that made me feel like I needed to take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> and I can certainly understand why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's too much more to go over. You know, One Thumb is really the only character of any great significance in this one. Um, Amoli shows up the, in the next story as sort of like a cameo. Um, um, okay, and that next story is called Mirtis, and that's by Christine DeWeese. Christine DeWeese is, and I'll, I'll quote from Robert Asprin's, essay at the back of uh, the book is a kindly white-haired grandmother who rides a Harley and wants to be a writer. Aspirin and Lynn Abbey had been reading her stuff and giving her feedback, encouraging her to submit her work to an editor. And when it looked like he wasn't going to have enough stories for the first volume, he brought her on board and somehow she got in touch with Marion Zimmer Bradley and, and got permission to use Lathandi in her story and in a, in a significant way as well. This is her only story in Thieves' World. Uh, Murtis comes up a little bit, sort of name-checked in other, other stories. She only has one other writing credit that I could find, and that's in another shared world anthology, the one by the Wendy and Richard Peeney, the ElfQuest Blood of Ten Chiefs anthology. But I also found out something interesting, and I'm not sure if this is just a coincidence or what, 
but her last name is actually also Lynn Abbey's mother's maiden name. So I wonder if the connection is that this is Lynn Abbey's aunt. Oh, I don't know. know. There's really nothing else about Christine Deweese out there at all. I I read Blood of Ten Chiefs, and that was one of my favorite, favorite books. I I always loved ElfQuest to begin with. So Yeah. uh, Yeah. And those were all some really, really good stories. I don't think there was a stinker in the bunch. No, for sure. That's that's definitely some great stuff. But Chris, why don't you take us through Murtis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Murtis is actually another kind of straightforward story. There just seems to be more to it, uh, more fleshing out, more more detail, that kind there's of thing. There's not a lot so. of ambiguity in this story. Everything is right up front. Everything is well explained and laid out. Uh, yes, very well put. Yes, that's absolutely what I was searching for there. So yeah. your point of view character here is uh, Murtis, who is the madam of Aphrodisia House. Uh, she has uh, spells kept upon her by Lethandi, who keeps uh, Murtis very young and ravishing looking, even though it's they don't say how old she is in one passage in there that she's been the Madam of Aphrodisia House when the Rankin Empire was a collection of half-naked barbarian tribes. I suspect that's hyperbole, but uh, it definitely <laughs> gives a sense of uh, age. So I always put it at about 100 years or so. That That's what I kind of figured reading the story. But yes, she's been the madam for quite some time. She's very powerful in that. She's the ruler of the Street of Red Lanterns, the queen of the Street of Red Lanterns, which is where all of the prostitution takes place. Uh, And they make sure to tell you that the Street of Red Lanterns is actually on the outside of Sanctuary rather than within its walls, which is a very uh, important detail later in the story. Um, Mm -hmm. We see Lethandi here, and and we actually see him in a uh, much more fleshed out position than we would in any of the previous stories, uh, which goes to what Dave was saying about uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley giving permission to uh, Deweese to use the character. We know a little bit more about her. We know she, uh, that Lethandi is the one that holds the spell uh, on Myrtis, uh, and they were friends and lovers possibly even in a previous time. Uh, we're also introduced to uh, Zalbar again, the incorruptible hellhound uh, that we saw in Jubal's story. We do get some of the other madams, um, some of whom have been referenced in earlier stories. We get uh, Amoli, who we just saw in the last story, uh, Jalisha, who I did not uh, touch on in Shadow Spawn's story, but she's very brief in that. Uh, yeah. But she comes back, and it's mentioned there that many of these madams have worked uh, in the house of uh, Aphrodisia there. They're not unfamiliar to Murtis herself, and as we've already said, she's kind of the, the queen of the Red Lantern Street. Uh, the story begins with uh, Murtis in the morning. She takes her breakfast, and she's told there's a soldier there to see her, and it turns out to be Zalbar. And Zalbar comes in and basically says, look, here's the deal. We're charging you 10 gold pieces for each one of your charges as a tax. And you need to pay it. And we're going to give you three days to do it. Well, Murtis, of course, knows two things about this. Number one, she knows if she pays it once, they're going to make her pay it over and over and over again until she's out of business, which is what the Rankins want. They want to clean the town up. And number two, she also knows that 
the other madams on the street will also be assessed that tax and none of them are as um, successful as she is. So they will be, they will go under much quicker than she will. So in a panic, the other madams start to visit her and tell her what's going on. She says, uh, don't sweat it. But Murtis is only really giving them kind of a, a false hope because she herself has no idea what the hell she's going to do. <laughs> and uh, once Zalbar came through, she had a message sent to Lithandi, uh, who appears that night to Murtis's call because, of course, as already established, they are both uh, old friends and Lithandi is the holder of Murtis' spell. So they, Murtis asks Lathandi to concoct a love potion for herself and Zalbar. And Lathandi can't understand why she would do that. You know, why would you want to fall, have a soldier fall in love with you and you fall in love with him? Um, but Murtis says, don't worry about it. I got this. Lathandi says it's going to take a couple of nights and I will have it delivered to you when it's done. So in the meantime, Murtis puts out word to Micken, one of the merchants who supplies foodstuffs to the city, and says, hey, we're not buying anything else. And of course, he's devastated because that's his business. You know, he says to her at one point, I've already slaughtered two cows for you today. You owe me money. And she turns back to him and says, have I ever bought anything on credit from you? And he says, no. And she says, well, what makes you think I owe you any money then? So, of course, he's miffed about that, and the order has gone down to all of the ladies, all of the madams on the street, don't buy anything from this. They're therefore putting pressure on the merchants, the foodstuff merchants, everyone that's affected by this tax, putting pressure on them, who in turn, because they no longer can make money doing what it is that they do in order to make money, they will now become angry and they will start to go towards the government of the town, Prince Catechithis and whatnot, and put pressure on him to maybe ease up. Let's let's not do this. I was struck by the similarity between this situation where Murtis is dealing with the Merchants Guild and withholding pay for the their goods. I, it put me in mind of the play Lysistrata, which is one of the original Greek dramas where the women withheld um, withheld themselves from their menfolk until the menfolk would do as what you know what they wanted. I don't know. It just seemed like a very similar situation, and because of course the um, you know sex has such a central role in this particular story uh, as it does in Lysistrata, it has a callback there. I thought. Yeah, I, I'm I'm familiar with the story of Lysistrata. It's been a million years since I heard it, though. So as soon as you said that, it popped back into my brain. But yeah, that, I yeah. happen to agree with that. I think that's absolutely a callback to that, certainly. Sure. So Murtis has, Murtis has told all the, the madams on the street, don't worry, this plan will work. Um, and it's been a couple of days, so Lathandi's... Uh, Potion shows up, and it happens to be just around the same time as Zalbar comes to Amoli, has come to Murtis and said, look, I can get Jubal to get his, his hawk masks through the tunnels and out into the streets and deal with the hellhounds themselves. And Murtis doesn't want to do that. She doesn't want that brand of violence and drugs and murder and all the rest of that 
coming through the city. She runs a pretty tight ship and she's pretty above board. She knows that Amoli pays her girls in Kerf, but Murtis herself does not do that. Now, whether mm-hmm. she's above it all or she just doesn't want that, you know, whatever, it's not her gig. So she doesn't want Jubal and his brand of of taking care of the problem to be uh, applied to this. But she tells Amoli and the rest of the women, don't worry about this. I got this. So Zalbar shows up. She's got the the coins ready in the box. He says, look, I got to count these. And she says, I understand. How about a drink? And it's, I forget the the liquor that she calls it, but apparently it's a very potent liquor that most folks only get a chance to have in a debased form. But she has a pure form of it. And she has added the love potion to both of the, the drinks before she places them in front of him. And of course, sanctuary being what it is, the, she says once um, once she gives him the drinks, she turns around and in a beveled mirror, she can see his reflection. He, pl- he drinks one of the drinks and I wouldn't say furtively, but definitely with a an eye to, hey, I got to pick the right one. What is this woman going to try to do to me? So she goes and she grabs the other drink that he hasn't and they quaff them and um, they go from there. Well, after a little while, Zalbar starts losing interest in, in counting his gold and he became more interested in Murtis herself. At this point, Murtis decides that she's going to put her plan into action, which is to sh- take Zalbar into the depths of the secret passages in the house, in the house of Aphrodisia. And I mentioned earlier that the Red Lantern District is on the outside of Sanctuary. It's against the walls of Sanctuary. And what she shows uh, Zalbar when she takes him through the secret passages is the house of Aphrodisia, by inference, all of the rest of the houses on the outside of the wall, they have access to the walls themselves. And inside these walls are all these passages where you can hide men and foodstuffs and billet them. And and you can have this whole secret force that no one would ever know about. And no one would have any idea was even there. So she lets Zalbar see all of these things and finally brings him around to the realization that by collecting these taxes and taking these women out of, of business and, and trying to shut all these things down, they're making a big mistake. They finally see eye to eye, Murtis and Zalbar do the deed, and it becomes a good thing for her because they she wants to be in love. She likes mm-hmm. being in love, and it's been a long time. And the potion itself has worked to the effect that now Zalbar is in love with her. She's in love with him, and she has uh, created a connection in this supposedly incorruptible hellhounds that she may need to take advantage of in the future. And I, I think that's actually a great way to do it. I mean, because money hasn't done it, and they have the the usage of the whorehouses if they want them. Them, they pay their money to do it. But now she has a she has her hooks in him in a way that I don't think anyone else could have done. So I think it was a brilliant way to do that. Yeah, good. It, it it's a um, interesting alliance of the CD quote CD side of sanctuary with the the power in town. Oh, it, it's a feel it's more of a feel good story than any any of the other ones really. 
Yeah, and it it gets them out of having to pay the tax because you know yeah. she showed him she showed him the interconnectedness of all of it, and you know if you're going to do us like this, it's going to affect everybody else. You could do this, but you think you got problems now? Just wait. Right. Yeah. Right. Main stand the standout character, of course, is the title character, Murtis. She's in like I think she's in every scene. She is a sympathetic character. She has good qualities. She is a the the queen of the street of Red Lanterns, but she's more of a mother to the people on the street than a queen, really. She is sanctuary through and through. Um, she it makes it clear that if the brothels are closed, then that weakens sanctuary. Um, sanctuary is stronger for the street of Red Lanterns. And it is the story is also kind of fun because of the connection with Lathandi. We, we get a little more about, well, we get a lot more of Lathandi in the next story. Zalbar is uh, a little more sympathetic in, in this story. He's a little, little more humanized by his connection to Murtis. And the love potion isn't like a one and done kind of thing. This love potion creates a lifelong affection between these two people. Ever after, you know, she has that ally in in, in the heart of power and sanctuary, and he will return to her. I know at the end it says he doesn't, but he actually does in a future story. I think that uh, this this is one of my favorite. There's nothing terrible, overly terrible that happens. Really hate watching Zalbar grow old and die because you know she's got that that spell of youthfulness that's on her from Lethandi. But it was the only way to convince him that the defense of the town could be entrusted to her and to her people. And I, and I think it actually shows another side of how to deal with power that doesn't have to deal with violence or murder or drugs or suborning someone's loyalty or, mm-hmm. you know, buying them off or whatnot. So, I mean, it all ends up Excellent. being the same thing. So, Excellent observation. Yes, for sure. All right, then. Let's move on to the last story in the book, The Secret of the Blue Star by Marianne Zimmer Bradley. I, you know, I mentioned last episode that uh, you know what we're going to do is we're going to discuss the stories and then we'll go through the uh, talk a little bit about the writers. Uh, but I mentioned last episode that we would kind of get to Marion Zimmer Bradley because she's a little bit of a special case. So I'll just I'll run down the facts and then we'll have a quick uh, discussion about this. But Bradley, uh, giant in the field, um, she was born in 1930, died in September of uh, 1999. She you know, she wrote Mists of Avalon. Uh, she wrote the Dark Over series. Uh, she wrote and edited in the the Sword and Sorceress anthologies. Uh, she had a uh, her own magazine, Marion Zimmer Bradley's Fantasy Magazine. Hundreds of credits to her name. Just a giant in the field. She was also, by the way, one of the founding members of the Society for Creative Anachronism. In fact, I think she's the one who coined that term. You know, her notable works. We talked about Dark Over. Uh, this was an of early uh, science fiction fantasy series that allowed other writers to come in and write in that milieu. Uh, Not exactly a shared world in so much as she created it and she allowed others to kind of come in. They didn't really have the same access that she had to really driving and creating in that. So she was married to a gentleman named Walter. Well, maybe gentleman is not the way, the the right way to talk about him, but his name is Walter Breen. He was convicted in, gosh, 1970, 
nine, I think. Anyway, he was convicted for child abuse. In 2014, there was a memoir that was published by Marion Zimmer Bradley's daughter. Her daughter's name is Moira Grayland. It accused her mother of sexually abusing her from the age of three to 12. And Moira also reveals that she was one of the people who reported Walter Breen for abusing, sexually abusing young boys. And this guy was put in jail for this. Uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley always said that she didn't know that that's what's going, what was going on. But in this memoir, Moira said that Marion Zimmer Bradley did know, in fact, uh, hushed it up and was responsible for maybe trying to adopt one of the kids Breen had abused. These allegations are fairly recent. They only came out in 2014 after Bradley had been dead for about 15 years. The reason why Moira Grayland never said anything sooner was that she always felt talking about these things might harm people her mother's writings had helped. Um, so uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley w- was an early advocate for feminist and lesbian viewpoints um, that she wrote under her own name and under many pseudonyms uh, throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Mists of Avalon, for instance, is a, a retelling from a feminist perspective of the Camelot story. It is just regarded as one of those great empowering texts for young women for someone to come come along, uh, say something. She said she didn't want to hurt anyone that her mother helped. And she feels that that might have done damage to the good work that her mother's writing had started. But at, at this point, by the way, if anybody were to buy a book um, written by Marion Zimmer Bradley, the, the publishers are donating the proceeds, at least a portion of those sales are donated to the Save the Children Foundation and uh, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. So that's uh, that's Marion Zimmer Bradley. That's the that's the challenge of reading and enjoying Marion Zimmer Bradley. She died of a heart attack in 1999, and she had her ashes scattered over Glastonbury Tor. Do you know what Glastonbury Tor is, Chris? Uh, England. It's a very steep hill uh, at the top of which used to be a tower. And at the bottom of which are ruins of an abbey. The legend has it that's where King Arthur was buried. That's why that's uh, suitable for her ashes to be scattered there because of her connection to Arthurian fiction. All right. Uh, she only wrote one story for Thieves' World. Uh, and then she kind of took her character, Lathandi, off and wrote other stories using this character in very short stories and magazines and other anthologies. She pretty much said, all right, I like this character. I'm, I'm going to exclusively use Lathandi myself. And she later would publish a book with all of the Lathandi stories in it. I think you very famously have that book. I do indeed. Yeah. She didn't immediately do that. And other writers would reference and even use Lathandi and and their stories um, in the next couple of volumes as well. Chris, why don't you take us through the story called The Secret of the Blue Star? This is Lathandi's story. Touched on this earlier about pronouncing names and whatnot. And it's my understanding that uh, Marion Zimmer Bradley pronounced it Lethond. But, you know, as we know, as we noted, what you end up saying in your head is generally how you're going to end up going with it. So, uh, and, and most of them are valid and the author's not there to point at you and laugh and go, that's not the way you say it. So it's all good. But that was her, that was her preferred pronunciation was Lethond. Um, so uh, Lethond 
is an adept of the Blue Star, which, an, which is an order of magicians which will fight in the final, final battle against chaos at the end of the world, and they are pledged to fight on the side of law. Each magician in the order of the Blue Star has a secret which gives them their power. Anyone who knows that secret will gain that person's power. So, of course, they jealously guard that secret. However, they are also bound not to lie about that secret if someone either accidentally or purposefully stumbles upon the line of questioning that will uh, reveal that secret. So they guard it very, very well. We also see Myrtis again, uh, the Madam of Aphrodisia House from uh, last uh, story, and we've already mentioned the connection between the two of them, uh, and it's fleshed out a little bit more here, and and it's done well. Uh, we see Cap'n Vera again, and I don't know if I think he's the one that's been in the most stories or mentioned in the most story. It's it's either him right. or Lethon. It's yeah. one of the two of them. So it's great to see him. Yeah. Uh, our antagonist in the story is Rabin the Half-Handed, who is also an adept of the Blue Star. However, he's a pretty scabrous dude. You know, he's <laughs> he's no. He's notorious for his lecheries and his ugliness. And as a matter of fact, uh, Lethon makes an, uh, at some point in the story, uh, Lethon says that just because we are pledged to fight against chaos in the end does not mean that you have to adhere to law while you're living. But that kind of excuses uh, the behavior of Rabin the Half-Handed. Uh, he's, he's basically a bad dude. As a matter of fact, he would probably be on the side of chaos, except for the blue star on his head. So Right, right. And then the last person that we see is Bercy, uh, who is a young girl that uh, is being used by uh, Rabin to uh, lure Lethond in. So... Uh, when we open up the story, I don't know where this came from, but somebody put this out in the air, said that this was a really good opening first line. I, I, I don't know why they would do this, but um, it goes like this. It says, on a night in sanctuary, when the streets bore a false glamour in the silver glow of Hill Moon, so that every ruin seemed an enchanted tower and every dark street and square an island of mystery, the mercenary magician Lethond sallied forth to seek adventure. Now, I don't know why anybody would purposely pull that out and say anything about that, but okay. Yeah, it's a pretty good All sentence. Right. So Chris is referring to my note <laughs> after this, which reads, quote, suck it, Raymond Feist, um, <laughs> which I included in there because, and I'm sure Raymond Feist is a very nice man and his books are very good. But for the longest time, I've had this hang up against reading them because he seems to begin every chapter with a single two-word paragraph sentence. And it just, it just for some reason, it just became a pet peeve of mine, and it just drove me nuts. I never have gotten more than halfway, well, a quarter of the way through um, Magician, the first book in his um, Metkemia series. Um, and I, I, have, I have since offered on more than one occasion to buy the series for David and take a marker and just cross out the first line of every single chapter because they're excellent books. I love them. I've read them several, several times and it hurts me that David cannot get through them. So I am willing to go through that pain in order to be able to help him out to read something I know he will enjoy. Um, I, I, 
Okay, so I'm. We're gonna get to it. I I I am gonna power through it. I'm gonna figure out a way to get over, get out of my own head, and overlook that Piccadillo. As I mean, as just like a counterpoint to that, that first line of that story is just beautiful. I mean, you can see why people revere the writing of Marion Zimmer Bradley. On a night in sanctuary when the streets bore a false glamour and the silver glow of hill moon, so that every ruin seemed an enchanted tower and every dark street and square an island of mystery, the mercenary magician Lathandi sallied forth to seek adventure. I, I do not dispute that it is a very good sentence. Do you have your copy of any Raymond Feist book handy? <laughs> um, I, I do. Actually, some of his later works. Let's see if he still does it. And I mean, this is like later, later works. Hang yeah, on yeah. one second here. Yeah. All right. Um, let's see. Miranda screamed. Okay. Yeah, All right. Let's see. All right. <laughs> I mean, that's good, too. <laughs> let's see. Chapter two. Jami frowned. Okay. Yeah. So maybe he still does it. Okay. <laughs> what book was that, by the way? Uh, it's called Wrath of a Mad God. That's not even no, the same series. No, no. This is no. book three of the Dark War saga, and it was printed copyright uh, 2008. To each their own, I suppose. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So you were telling us about the Secret of the Blue Stars story. It starts off with uh, uh, Lethon popping into a tavern, and she hears a minstrel song played on a really crappy lute or whatever. There you it was. go again. Did I do it again? Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. <sighs> this is twenty twenty three. Mind your pronouns. <laughs> All right. It's so hard. it's not it's not easy to to hide the pronoun on Lethandi. Uh, it it really isn't because um, there's, as a matter of fact, there's a bullet point here that says the only paragraph in the story that uses male pronouns for uh, Lethon is, and I quote, Lethon drew from the folds of his robe a small pouch containing a quantity of sweet smelling herbs, rolled them into a blue gray leaf and touched his ring to spark the roll alight. He drew on the smoke, which drifted up sweet and grayish. They're, they're very vague terms anytime that Lethand is shows up in any of these stories, or they are specifically he, him pronouns. So the the secret of Lethand is not revealed until the end of this story right here. And I have screwed it up. It all makes sense as we go through the story, how it gets to be where it is. So while I've ruined it, I apologize. It, yeah. it actually is still a secret. That paragraph is the only instance in which Marianne Zimmer Bradley uses the male pronoun for Lathandi or any pronoun at all for Lathandi until the last paragraph of the story. And every other author's story, they use male pronouns. Yes. Uh, but this is yes. the only instance of Brad. Bradley actually went through and she was supposed to, she actually had her, her assistant go through and remove instances of, of any pronouns in the story at all. So she must have just missed this paragraph um, until the last sentence where the pronouns actually sort of make the story. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to that. Well, most folks could figure it out from here, but go ahead, Chris. Yeah. So she's enchanted. Uh, she's enchanted by the the song of the minstrel, who turns out to be Captain Vera. Because she is, she goes ahead and offers to buy uh, Captain Vera a drink. 
And Captain Vera basically says, hey, you know, I don't drink alone and I don't take favors, so you're going to have to drink with me. In order not to offend someone who is obviously a powerful wizard, because why else would you walk around with a blue star on your forehead? Captain Vera... (laughs) Captain Vera has a little snake amulet, which is actually referenced in his own story, uh, Mm -hmm. which I kind of glossed over earlier, but uh, it's a charm that was given to him by a wizard that is supposed to protect him from uh, magic use. And in order to use it, he has to speak three truths. He says uh, in defense of himself, after he finds out that Lethon won't drink with him, he says with his hand around the snake amulet, he says, you are like no man I have ever met before. I wish you no ill will and you wish me none. And Cap'n tells him, but you're not the only wizard I have seen in Sanctuary who bears a blue star about his forehead. So now Lethon is trying to figure out who the hell else it is. So when Cap'n describes... Uh, who the Blue Star Adept is, as bearded and missing fingers on his left hand, Lethon knows him for Rabin the Half-Handed. And it turns out that Lethon might have been the reason why he's half-handed. So (laughs) probably a good idea she finds out what's going on with Rabin. So uh, Lethon goes someplace uh, to meditate and astrally projects to the place that is not the pilgrim place, the temple of the star sharers, where the master of the blue star sits upon a throne and calls him Shiru, uh, which is a term of endearment, which could mean fellow, companion, brother, sister, beloved, equal, pilgrim, but it is literally translated as sharer of starlight, which marks all of those with the blue star on their forehead as being adepts in that order. That was like a really beautiful uh, bit there. I just thought that was cool. It is because you know a lot of times, especially in fantasy literature, we get these um, we get these made up words, and they give us a translation for it. But there's really not any kind of a nuance to it, and not every word mm-hmm. needs nuance. Don't get me wrong, but to throw right. in that little bit of description to it to give it a little bit more flavor, yeah, I'm with you on that. That's good. I like yeah. that. Yeah. So the master assures Lethon that the hour of the final battle has not come. So Rabin is not there to summon Lethon to the, the final battle. So there's obviously some other reason why Rabin is there. So Lethon stumbles upon Rabin in the street, and uh, we see that Rabin has a, a beautiful young girl with him who is being basically molested and, you know, having Rabin forced upon her. And of course, Lethon demands the release of the girl or face the challenge. Rabin's like, let's go. We're going to do this. And Rabin guesses that Lethon's secret is that Lethon has no use for a woman, but Lethon denies it and they too, they fight. Uh, they're battling buying sorcery, and Lethon subdues Rabin, takes the girl, whose name is Bercy, and they run away to go to uh, Aphrodisia House, which is really a safe place for Lethon. And Bercy is just absolutely overwhelmed by Lethon. You've saved me, and now I want to give myself to you. You are my sa- my hero. My, you know, that I, I need to repay you. I'm in love with you. And Lethon just basically rebuffs her and says, that's that's not going to happen. So once they're at the Aphrodisia house, they clean up Bercy 
And uh, we see an, a second scene of Bercy basically just saying, you know, you're my hero. This I'm in love with you. I'm, you know, giving you myself. And she starts a line of uh, questioning that goes, uh, you know, do you, why don't you want me? Do you not like women? You know, this and that. Are you not man enough? And Lethan finally figures that there's spell casting going on. Um, as I mentioned earlier, when questioned directly on matters that might pertain to whatever the secret is that keeps the adept's power with them, they cannot lie. So Lethand has to figure out a way to get around it because now she knows that Rabin has put a spell on Bercy in order to break the secret and get it from Lethand so that he can get Lethon's power. Um, she can't send the girl away because that would give away the secret or at least give a, a, enough uh, credence to the line of questioning that she was going through that Rabin could confront her and, and take her power from her. So she concocts giving in. She kind of tricks the girl, basically. Uh, she asks Murdis to prepare a room for her and they get to the room. Bercy's laid out on the bed. She's just ready, willing, and able. And Lethand ends up casting another spell as she comes to Bercy, making a wraith lover who proceeds to do all the things that a man would do to a woman and that leaving Bercy to know no different than Lethand is the best lover out there who can go all night and could satisfy any woman. And that's the story she's going to tell to everyone. It throws Rabin off the trail because he thought he had something, but then, you know, this story comes out where, you know, Lethand is this great lover. Lethand leaves Bercy in Murtis's care, uh, lamenting that if only she could have loved me. Lethand leaves because she did, you know, that's, that's heady stuff. And the girl was pretty. And, you know, if it was, she felt she wanted to trust this girl with her secret. But if she did, then of course, Rabin would have found out and then the jig would have been up and that would have been over. So she has to hide that. So uh, hence the shadow lover and, and whatnot, which having said those words, that's something that uh, Mercedes Lackey uses for death, shadow lover. But anyways, oh, really? yeah, that's, that's, well, we, uh, we know there's a connection there. Yes, we do. And in the very end, as uh, Lethand and, uh, figures she has to get out of there now because now Rabin, he has the scent of blood. Now he's been thrown off the trail, but that doesn't mean he won't try again. And she certainly can't stick around where Bercy is because now Bercy is in the house of um, Aphrodisia with Murtis. So that's no longer really a sanctuary for her anymore. So she's getting ready to go. She says to Murtis, farewell, my beloved sister. Murtis basically says back to her, farewell, my love, my, my lovely sister. So we find out that Lathan's secret is that she is a woman. That's, that's kind of sort of, I've given it away all the way up to this point. <laughs> that's the secret reveal, but that is the secret to her power. Yeah. It, and it, it hits too, the, because all throughout the story, she does avoid using any kind of pronouns except for that one slip in that one. Every other person's story, they call Lathandia he. And then at the end, when you read that last paragraph, it all sort of makes sense. The relationship that she has with Murtis, the, the, the reason why she wants to hide her secret from Rabin. It's just like a real effective reveal. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And the fact that it was the last, literally the last sentence in the last story just makes it hit all the more hard. 
it, it was it was really a great way to to end that story. So Lathandi is just a great character. Um, she doesn't really feature a whole lot moving forward in Thieves' World, but I, and I've not read the the fix up novel of short stories uh, Bradley put out afterwards. Uh, so I, I definitely, so I, I, I haven't had enough Lathandi in my life, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really good. I, I enjoyed the heck out of it. It was one of those things that I found, like I said in the last episode, I found it in a used bookstore for a buck seventy five, and yeah. I always knew I liked the character from the Thieves' World uh, stories, and I'd never read anything else along those lines. So when I found that, I was like, oh, gold mine, baby, and it was good. I did. Really I, I did buy it on Kindle, so I, I do have it. I just haven't gotten a chance to get into it yet. Do they ever get to the final battle of the the adepts of the Blue Star against Chaos? Tell you what, been a million years since I read it. Although I do have the book up here on the shelf. If if you give half a second, I, if I can figure it out from um, chapter titles, we can go, and I'll give you the answer. Yeah. Let's see. You would think it would be towards the end. <laughs> Yeah, I think they have reprinted the story we just went over as the first story in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah, it is. Um, but anyways, the titles are The Secret of the Blue Star, The Incompetent Magician, Somebody Else's Magic, C-Rack, and The Wandering Loot. So, uh, and there's one more in here. It's by Vonda McIntyre. It's called Looking for Satan which I'm assuming is a story that is uh, involves Lethon, but does not actually is not written by MCB. So, but it does not, it does not look as if they do get to the final battle. Looking for Satan is actually a thieves world story. Vonda McIntyre wrote for the third book, shadows of sanctuary or shadows over sanctuary, whatever it is. And it's, uh, it's also the only, I think that's the only thieves world she ever wrote. And it does have Lethandi in a, significant supporting role in that story uh there is introductions for each of these chapters uh and the introduction to looking for satan is one of the rules of the original thieves world anthology was that characters were free to write about other people's characters although with certain restrictions e.g no killing off or reforming someone else's character uh, when Vonda, whom I esteem very highly, sent me a copy of this story, it seemed that in essence she had reformed Lithandi, for in uh, Vonda's original draft, Lithand agreed to return home with Westerly and her crew, in essence giving up her wandering life. This struck me as an almost too good solution of Lithand's future, but I couldn't see Lithand doing anything so sensible. I conveyed my doubts to Vanda, and she ob- obligingly rewrote the end in a way that made it clear that Lithand was accepting this as a temporary solution to her difficulties in the world where she was. But when she goes again to roaming, no doubt there will be other adventures in different worlds, for the essence of Lithand's magic is that she crosses worlds at will. She cannot be... Uh, only wherever, but whenever she chooses. So, and that's oh. that's the last chapter in here. So, I'm I'm assuming that no, they do not get to the final battle, or at ah. least not in this book. Yeah, I think that original edition is not complete. I think there were more Lathandi stories that were published afterwards. Um, well, the last one, the last one in the copyright page says uh, the last MZB story for this edition is 86 and the Vonda McIntyre story was 81. So, and that was the one that was included in the third thieves world. And it says the first printing of the book I have here is August of 86 and I'm holding a third edition print of it. 
I I, I want to say there were like in total like fifteen Lafondi stories. So there were definitely more that were put out after that book was published. And I think the last one was published in the uh, magazine, Marion Zimmer Bradley's magazine of science fiction and fantasy. It's a mouthful. Yeah. Any, anything else to talk about, uh, about the secret of the blue star? Uh, no, it, it's, it's one of my favorite stories because really Lethand is really one of my favorite characters. And it has yeah. Captain Vera, who is actually my second favorite character. So oh. I can't lose. <laughs> yeah. This was, this was a good story for you then. Indeed um, it was. All right. Well, let's let's think about for a second, like this book as a whole. You know, we talked about last episode what makes it special, interesting, or unique, in as much as it created an entire genre or subgenre of fiction. Um, but does this book stand the test of time, Chris? Is it as good now as it was when it was first published? How does? I think you had some thoughts on that. It really kind of depends on where you're coming at it coming at it from i mean if this is if this is one of your first forays into reading any kind of share world shared world uh type of writings then yes this absolutely holds up because not only did it basically invent the genre but it is a really good representation of what you can do when you engage writers in a a way like this however if you're coming at it from a different direction, uh, you know, you've read a whole bunch of different shared world type stuff, then I would say this is just one more representation of what you already know. Mm -hmm. uh, not that it's good, not that it's bad. It's just you already know what the uh, construct is and you're familiar with it and this does not vary from it. But if you don't know the history of it, then that's what you might think. But as someone who does know the history of it and saw it, you know, basically from the beginning, um, yeah, it definitely holds a, it holds a special place for me. Okay, excellent. I think I probably agree mostly with that. I think as we were, as I was doing my most recent reread of this, some of the things that pop out at you are the the way some of these writers treat uh, women, children, and just the the casual way in which this abuse. Uh, that takes place in this book is discussed. I think there's a certain amount of prurient train wreck about it, uh, where you don't you don't look away from it because it's so awful. <laughs> but I, I think a modern audience would tend to cringe more than than stare in horrible horrid disgust. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that that's true. I mean, especially considering the climate that we're in right now, um, sure. and that's why I tried. That's why I try to keep kind of an open mind towards things as far as putting them in the place where they came from. I mean, you can name countless examples of things that you and I saw or read or listened to as we grew up that just seem normal because that's what was going on at the time. Whereas someone who wasn't involved in that or born then or wasn't interested at that time, they see it now in the, the climate that we're in there and you know they're clutching their pearls. Uh, fair, very fair. Um, okay, so in that case, let's give this book some rating. All right. Um, where do you want to start? Uh, Rereadability? You want to start at the end? <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. Good characters. Good. Where do you want to start? I mean, we can go anywhere you want to go. We'll, we'll start. Uh, we'll start with story, and there's many stories. Um, but we'll, um, 
we'll we'll kind of give it an overall, I think. Well, or if you just there's only eight stories, we could do like a quick rundown, um, and we'll, we'll give them a, a a scale a score on a scale of bad, okay, good, excellent, or legendary. And we'll start with the first story, which is uh, "Sentences of Death" by John Bruner. That's the one with um, Jarvina and Enos Ural. I would say if there was a place between good and excellent, I would go there. Okay. Um, there's a lot in it. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot to be taken from it. It moves along really quick, uh, and you have your characters, their motivations, and the setting pretty well. So, um, but yeah. it's yeah, excellent. I'm, I'm oh yeah, <laughs> I'm going to go with excellent. I think it's uh, it's got a neat twist. It's got great characters. It you know it's got a satisfying ending, um, and it, it's a, I think it's a really great introduction to what we're getting into with Thieves' World. Yeah, that you took the words right out of my mouth. It sets the tone for what it is that's ready to come. The next story follow. is called "The Face of Chaos." That's the one with Alira, fortune teller, the building of the temple of Savankala and Savilia. Yeah, I really like that. I again, I would give it between a, a good and an excellent. I mean, I don't know which direction to go from there. I like I like Alira. I think Dubro is a good complementary character to her, um, and the story they told was neat and succinct, and I, I thought it was really good. I would give that an excellent as well. Um, the Gate of the Flying Knives by Paul Anderson. Ah, see now, if there's a between an excellent and a legendary, I would go there because I, I I really like that. I like all the characters in it. I like the reasoning behind it. I like that uh, Danila ends up being something other than what Captain Vera thought she was uh, to begin with. I thought that was a great way to end his and her <laughs> arc in that. I thought the sick and tears were great. I thought Jamie was a, a great representation of what it was that he was supposed to be. And, you know, I, like I said, Captain Vera is my second favorite. So um, I'll go. I'll go excellent at least. Okay. I, I'm going to go legendary, but for all the same reasons, I'm just a lighter touch. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think actually i i even have some um criticism of this i think it's slightly overwritten I, there's i think the prose is a bit prosy but um i mean it's it's paul anderson so it's well done i i really it's a minor critique yeah i'm still going with this this is a legendary story yeah yeah okay i'll take that shadow spawn that's the one with hans the thief who steals the Rod of authority. Reading it, I thought it was good. I didn't think it was excellent. Hans Shadowspawn was not as fleshed out as he could have been, even in a short story. It basically felt like the story was built on rails. I mean, you had to do this to get to there, to get to the next part, to get to the next part. It's not yeah. a bad story. I just think it's good. Fair. That's that's your that's a valid opinion. I had opposite opinion though i i feel like the attitude and swagger of that character really came through and maybe that's not characterization but it led to a very enjoyable reading experience for that story for me i'm going to give that one an excellent all right uh so the price of doing business by robert Asprin. that's the one with jubal and uh getting ambushed by the urchins saved by the hellhound yeah i'm gonna go fair Ooh, is that really? one of ours? Okay. Yeah. The... It just, it didn't do anything for me. I mean, it really? was, 
I understand their short stories. I get that. I really do. But it it seemed really rote to me, man. It okay. really did. I hear you, and I'm on the same page. I'm going to give it a good though, because um, I think it resonated with me a little bit more. He followed his theme through, which is right in the title of the story. The price of doing business, uh, being the you know the cost is Jabal's soul. It's short. It's easy to read. It's I, I'll give it a little more credit. Blood Brothers by Joe Haldeman. That's the one with one thumb. Yeah. Um, the world's most painful um, birth control device. <laughs> I, I'm going to give it a Gexcellent or a Exude or something like that because, oh my God, why can I not use my brain today? What it adds in atmosphere, what it gives you in atmosphere is excellent, but it was not as strong a story as it could be. It had good notes. It just yeah. didn't. I, you gave me a lot and you gave me a short story. So I guess maybe it was over full is what oh. I'm getting at. I don't okay. know. Okay. Well, be- better too much than not enough, I suppose. Okay. I-, I could see where you're coming from. This is, this is one, like I said, it was, a, it was a tough read for me uh, just because it was, it was just so gritty and, dark no sympathetic characters at all and you know the scene where he is stalked by the pickpocket he comes up behind him and he just like knifes him multiple times in the back and then cuts his throat and leaves him for dead that's just some brutal stuff and i guess you know it comes from i mean this guy is a, a war veteran he wrote war science fiction novels and i don't know it's just, I, I found it difficult to enjoy it it was satisfying. It had a neat uh, twist trick ending, but um, difficult to enjoy per se. So I'm going to somewhere between good and excellent for me, probably as well, probably trending more towards the good side. Um, all right. How about Murtis by Christine Deweese, the one about the Madam of Aphrodisia House? Yeah. See, this one's weird for me because the story itself is kind of weak. I mean, the hellhounds come in, they demand money, they do a tricksy thing, and there it is. That's the end of the story. So that's as far as the story itself is concerned, eh. but the characters I like, I like Murtis. She's a good character. I like Luthan. She's my favorite character. And the way the story was told was really good. It just seemed like a weak story. If any of that makes sense. I, it does make sense. And I think we forgive it a lot because it comes right after the brut- the brutality of blood brothers <laughs> yeah um, and it's just an, it's just it's a nice story nobody gets hurt no one's killed there's nobody snorting drugs or <laughs> uh, stabbing somebody or betraying someone it's just it, it has a good ending it, it seems a little maybe it seems a little out of place in thieves world <laughs> then maybe that's why could be. And, and I wasn't looking for blood and gore and people dying and all the rest of that stuff. And it was a nice palate cleanser. I, I will definitely give you that. It just seemed like a pretty basic story to me. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. So I think you would say it was good. Uh, yes. I would say it was good. Yes. Okay. I mean, I really, I really liked it too. I, I think for the, all the reasons I just talked about, I, I think I was initially. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and last but not least, the secret of the blue star. I'm going to go legendary only because it's my introduction to my favorite character from the whole thing. And even though I screwed it up the entire episode and gave away the ending, there was never any hint beforehand that Lethand was a woman at all. Right. You're right. There was never any overt hint. 
that Lothandi was was a woman, but there wasn't not not a hint. <laughs> like it's it's one of those things where you're sort of expected to think one way, and sort of Bradley allows you, the writer allows you to think in that way. Uh, but she plays fair with her audience. She doesn't, except for that one slip, doesn't ever say he when it comes to Lothandi. But <laughs> I think really ambiguity leads to surprise in this. And I think she leads us through that very, very well. Yeah. So, and nobody yeah, else sure. gives it away either when they use the character. So that's that's why it makes it such a really good reveal at the end. Yeah. Well, they didn't know. I don't know if they knew. <laughs> right? Yeah, that could be true. Yeah. Uh, I think Christine DeWeese might have known uh, just the way that Murtis is written. But I will agree with you. I think it is legendary. So that of the eight stories, we've got Paul Anderson's Gate of the Flying Knives is legendary and Marion Zimmer Bradley's uh, Secret of the Blue Star is legendary and a number of excellence and goods. Yeah. Overall, this is this is really a good a good day to sit down and read. Um yeah. All right, so the setting, um, I'm, I think we agree, based on the amount of time we've spent, that this is a legendary setting. Sanctuary oh, yeah. is just going to live in the annals of one of the best places to set a fantasy story, right up there with Middle Earth and Darnia. And... When, you, when you create something that everybody else copies from, you know you got something good. Yeah. We talked about um, some of these characters. But uh, let, uh, how would you rate the characters in this? In fact, I'm quite sure we're, we're going to say that there are some characters that are legendary. What are some of the legendary characters in Thieves' World? We could, right off the bat, we could say Lathandi and Captain Vera, right? Yes. And I, I will say um, Enos Yorl, just for the fact that, I mean, come on, man. I said it before. How many mm-hmm. other curses are like that? That's just awesome. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think uh, One Thumb is uh, kind of a legendary character. I always think of One Thumb when I think of the Vulgar Unicorn, and I always think of the Vulgar Unicorn when I think of Thieves' World. Yeah. Two that might be are Jabal and Alera, the Sedanzo fortune teller. Both of them continue to come back through the series throughout the 12-book run, run. I do I do like Ilira. Jabal is not my favorite character, as I may have you know alluded to earlier. All right, uh, let's move on to world building. Oh, again, what I just said. If you build something that everybody else is going to copy from, then yes. Yeah. <laughs> I specifically liked, I mean, you got the you know sanctuary, the, the down on its luck city, and the, the, uh, the emerging empire, the Rankin Empire, and the, the wizards that are in the town. And, but Ennis uh, you know, Yorl's um, curse. And, but I specifically like the world building that was done in the Secret of the Blue Star, but, uh, namely around the, the, the order of the adepts in the final battle against uh, chaos. Um, I thought that was some good stuff, and it's not really ever followed up in, in Thieves' World, but that's all right. Well, one of the funny things about that, and it's adjacent, is, and we already know the link, but Mercedes Lackey uses uh, a certain ranking of magicians. Uh, it's like apprentice and journeyman and then adept and then something like that. So the verbiage that she uses is familiar to me as a Lackey fan. And because I know the link between the two of them, it's not unusual to see that. But yeah, it's, it was very easy for me to pick out you know, what an adept was. Sure. And of course, there is the Michael Moorcock connection too. Moorcock is very, very much concerned about that battle between law and chaos. Yeah. 
Yes, and that that came to me as well. I, I thought that was uh, I thought that was a neat little twist to put in there too. I thought that was pretty cool. That's the whole premise behind his in- eternal champion. It is, yes. And to be to be honest with you, I think it would be really cool to see any kind of marriage between, <clears throat> excuse me, like Lethon's Order of the Blue Star and Elric or any of the rest of the heroes. Ooh. So I, I think that would be a really neat thing to see the two of them together. I mean, if you want to go shared yeah. world, write me up the battle between law and chaos at the end and yeah. put Elric at one side and Lethon on the other side. That'd be cool as shit. Yeah, it would. Wow, that's a great idea. <laughs> All right, that's your other homework. <laughs> write the story? <laughs> yeah, yeah, write that story. I want to read it. All right. All right, so this is a little different. So because it's uh, these are a bunch of short stories, so it's we'll change up the questions a little bit. How about your favorite story? Ooh, man. I'm going to go in a direction that you won't think. I'm going to go the Gate of the Flying Knives. That was just too cool. I enjoyed that whole story. That was just really, really cool. Yeah. And since you said Gate of the Flying Knives, I'm going to say The Secret of the Blue Star. Okay. Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. So we got got those two covered. (laughs) We do. So this is actually going to be questions for, I had something in mind for the other question, but I, I thought of this question while we were discussing it, but who, who are the characters that you really root for in these stories? Now, obviously, Lathandi and Captain Vera are two, but who else is there? In Sentences of Death, you're going to root for Jarvina. Yeah, and, I, and that's kind of the direction I was thinking. I, I, to answer the question, I would say I would root for the people who were wronged and were enacting whatever vengeance was the right answer to their wronging. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fair. So like for, yeah. for, for, for instance, in the story of Jubal, I actually identify with the kid. You killed my friend. I'm coming to fuck you up, man. Right. So that's who I'm rooting for in that story. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. The way to look at that. That's true. There's not always somebody to root for in every every story because, like in Blood Brothers and the One Thumb story, who do you root for in that story? Oh God, yeah. See, now I'm with you on that. There really isn't anyone to root for in that. No, I don't, I don't think so. Um, who do you root for in? Well, I guess that's really the only one that's got the Gate of the Flying Knives. You got Cap and Vera in Shadow Spawn. I don't know if you want to root for Hans in Shadow Spawn. I guess he's. I would he's, root for in that one. I would root for the prince, Catechithis. Okay, good call. Yep. Um, we already talked about the price of doing business. You'd root for Mungo, <laughs> Blood Brother. Nobody. Murtis. Obviously, Murtis is a very sympathetic character. And in the Secret of the Blue Star, we I think we could agree that Lathandi is a good character to root for. I agree right. with all that. Okay, so here's the here's the actual third question of the questions three. If you could have had any fantasy author write a Thieves' World story who didn't, who would you hire? Oh, it's got to be Moorcock. Really? Oh, yeah. God, yes. Absolutely. That's okay. that's fucking down and dirty. That's where he lives, man. I can just imagine an Elric in Sanctuary. Uh, he, would, <laughs> he would cut a swath through that place of, of chaos and depravity. He'd probably try to take over first. He would set up shop in the Vulgar Unicorn, hi- hire some cutthroats, and just go nuts with Stormbringer. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Blood and souls for Ariok, man. Yeah, right. 
<laughs> the pale white duke returns. So I've, I had two in mind. The first one is uh, C.L. Moore. She, she was a pulp fiction writer in the golden age, 30s, 40s, and 50s of science fiction fantasy. Um, she wrote a character called Jarelle of Joirie, uh, an early Red Sonia-esque type of character, contemporaneous with Robert E. Howard and Conan. She was um, the lady of a castle in medieval France, but it, the, the, the stories were all firmly based in like a sword and sorcery um, setting. And she had the, the, the classic story that C.L. Moore wrote with Jarelle of Joirie is... Um, Black God's Kiss, which I, you know, I, I won't spoil it because that's it's the episode's not about that. Sorry, but anyone who really likes this sort of thing should search that out. And I think Jarell would have made a fantastic character in Thieves' World, or a fantastic addition to Thieves' World. The other writer that I might have hired is Carl Edward Wagner, who wrote the Kane stories and novels. Uh, and Kane is a mystic swordsman who's probably like. Cain, who was the first murderer, who lives forever and features in fantasy and science fiction stories across like a spectrum of time frames. And I just think he would be, uh, and Carl Edward Wagner was just one of the great underused and underappreciated talents in the genre for such a long time. Uh, He died uh, tragically too young, and I think he had some addiction problems as well. I'm not sure why he was never approached to write a Thieves' World story. I think he would have been a a great fit for that for that project. Not not being familiar with either of those people's works, so I'm going to have to take your word for it. You, if you look up C.L. Moore's Black God's Kiss, um, it's a short story. In fact, all of the Jarrell stories are short stories. I don't think she ever wrote a novel. I think it was all short stories. You will not regret it. Uh, Carl Edward. Wagner wrote a lot of short stories and novels combined. Okay. All right. Why don't we move on to, um, so we're going to call it Chris's playlist, but it's also could be Chris's word of the day. Did you come up with a a word of the day for us, Chris? (laughs) Um, I'm going to cheat. And I'm going to go back to Thaumaturge, which ah. uh, came up in uh, one of Glenn Cook's, and I, I know I mentioned it in, in one of our episodes there, but it also reappeared here. And there are several other words, one or two of which I don't think I remember seeing. Of course, I've read the books before, so I obviously saw it, but yeah. I literally looked at the word and go, I have no idea what that means. And for the life of me, I cannot remember what the damn word is. So I'm going to have to go with Thaumaturge. All right. So, Chris, why don't you tell us tell us what a thaumaturge is? Uh, it is a practitioner of the magical arts who deals mainly in symbols. I think um, I, I could be mistaken there, but I believe that's the the context for it. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, well defined. Well done. Yeah, I, I guess we should say this is the first time we've done this particular segment. We've always called it Chris's Playlist, but you know, sometimes there's just not a song that's suitable to the material, and there's always a cool word that we can pick out that we've not heard or read before. And that's one of the, the delights of reading fantasy fiction is sometimes you get these archaic words or strange words or even, even made-up words. We can even pull in some of the, the terms that uh, the, the writers make up to explain their, their imaginary worlds, too. I like that. All right. How about David's second shelf? 
What do you got on David's second shelf this time for us? Well, um, I it's I, I've been reading a lot of um, the Thieves World stuff, so we're we're only now covering the first book, but I'm in the fourth or fifth, I think, whatever, just starting the fourth, I think, actually. Um, but I did because it was my birthday. I went out and I spent some uh, gift cards at some bookstores, and I did pick up the recent Star Trek novel by John Jackson Miller called The High Country, and it's based on the new Star Trek series, Strange New Worlds. Do you know the one, Chris? Are you watching Strange New Worlds? I, I am watching Strange New Worlds, and I like it very much. Isn't it fantastic? It's really, it's like classic Star Trek with modern sensibilities. Yeah, I think that's an apt description, and I really do like it. I just saw an ad for it the other night, and I was kind of hoping they were coming out with the second season soon, because I really enjoyed the first season. Yeah, they're coming out with the second season in a couple weeks. Oh, that was true then. Oh, hell yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know what's even cooler is that they're doing a crossover episode with my current favorite Star Trek series, Lower Decks. Oh, okay. I have not watched that yet. I've I've heard good things about it, but I haven't watched it. It's fantastic. It is hilarious. Um, it's comedy. It's an animated series and it's comedy, but it's it's not a kid's show. Um, it's very reverential and referential for Star Trek. You got to watch it. Excellent. Yeah, I'll, I'll put that in the list, man. Well, but uh, The High Country by John Jackson Miller is uh, an original story uh, that he wrote based on the crew of the Enterprise with under Captain Pike's crew with Spock and um, number one, Una Chinriley, uh, Uhura, etc. It is just a fun ride, very true to the characters as we've seen them in Strange New Worlds. Give it two big thumbs up. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. That's, that's actually one of the segments I enjoy about this show is because is it's something that I probably have not read before, and it's always good to have a, a backup to fall on and go, hey, Dave said this was good. I think I should read it. One of, yeah. One of these days, I'm going to compile um, a list of the books that are on second shelf, a list of the songs that you recommended on the playlist and the words that you come up with your word of the day. Uh, also, I need to figure out this, the, the rating system because we've been rating all these books, but I'm not like like applying the an average rating for each book. And I think there's a way to like make this more statistic, approach this from a more statistical standpoint. So I'm figuring out a way to do that. We'll probably come up with that, maybe post it on the website or one of the social media pages. Excellent yeah. idea. All right. Well, um, I think that four hours into it, we are ready to sign off. Uh, That's it for this episode of the Fantasy Canon Podcast. Join us next time when we will discuss Dragons of Autumn Twilight by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. This helps us reach more listeners and to do more episodes. Until then, you can join the conversation at www.thefantasycanon.com or send us an email at thefantasycanon at gmail.com. Our Twitter handle is at thefantasycanon, and you can find us on Facebook at the Fantasy Canon page. Thanks for listening. Namarie. Good reading, Dave. All right, and we're out. My God.
good luck Eden and all that shit, dude. Oh yeah, this ain't gonna be no hour and a half. No. No. You may want to break this into two.